For the first 300 years of Christian history, the church wore a bullseye on its back. For starters, our leader Jesus was subjected to Roman crucifixion. His first followers were persecuted by their fellow Jews. One of the early church leaders, a man named Tertullian, a man who lived just a few years after Peter, by the way, he described the persecution of his day as follows. If the Tiber River floods the city, or if the Nile refuses to rise, or if the sky withholds its rain, if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. Everything from natural disasters to deadly diseases were blamed on the Christians. The followers of Jesus became Rome's favorite whipping boy. They were secular society's scapegoat. In the beginning, believers were subjected to false accusation and ridicule and mean treatment and discrimination, but then the animosity intensified. Property was confiscated and leaders were arrested. Eventually, Christianity became the official enemy of the state. Physical persecution, even torture, grew commonplace. Christians were crucified and thrown to the lions. The martyrdom of believers was turned into sport and spectacle. Around 65 AD, both Paul and Peter were martyred in the city of Rome. Now here's why the Christians became the scourge of Rome. At the height of the empire, every Roman was required to burn a pinch of incense as an act of worship to the Caesar. They would come to the altar, they would toss their incense into the fire, and they would take the pledge, Caesar is Lord. After uttering that vow, the person then received a certificate, a libellus. This allowed him to worship any other god on his list of deities. Rome didn't care which god you worshipped as long as you put the Caesar first. Of course, this was a vow that no Christian could take. Jesus warned us, no man can serve two masters. And time after time, when confronted with the choice, Christ or Caesar, the Christian would rise up in love for the Jesus who died for him and utter his own death sentence. Jesus is Lord. Some of these courageous Christians were dipped in pitch and used as human torches to light the emperor's parties. Other believers were stoned or beheaded or crucified. Still others were dragged behind wild horses in the arena. Spectators would cheer as their bodies were torn and dismembered. Still other believers were wrapped in animal skins and thrown to hungry dogs. Thousands of Christians were taken to the Colosseum in downtown Rome and tossed to the lions. And if you couldn't buy tickets, you could watch it all on Sports Center that night. Rome's cruelty had turned into sport. When I was in Rome, I visited the Colosseum, took the tour. And I got to tell you, it caused me some eerie feelings. It was like a victim returning to the scene of the crime. I could almost hear the screams and the cheers of the bloodthirsty mob. The insanity of the crowd calling for the death of a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. The blood of the saints still seemed mixed with the dirt on the ground. 
In the classic book, Martyr of the Catacombs, there's a scene from the Colosseum. It's an eyewitness account. Let me read it. An old man entered the arena. His form was bowed and his hair silver white. His appearance was hailed with shouts of derision, although his majestic face and dignified manner only excited admiration. As the shouts of laughter and yells of derision came down to his ears, he raised his head and uttered, Romans, I am a Christian. My God died for me, and I gladly laid down my life for him. A loud outburst of yells from the fierce mob drowned his voice. Before it was over, three panthers came bounding toward him. He folded his arms, looked to heaven, and his lips moved as if murmuring a prayer. The savage beast fell upon him as he stood, and in a few minutes, he was torn in pieces. And this happened off and on for 300 years. Yet amazingly, despite this fierce persecution, perhaps because of it, the church grew. Christianity spread like wildfire all across the empire. This tremendous sacrifice of the Christians caught people's attention. They realized the value of something so important that a man would lose his own life to sustain it. It's been said the blood of the martyrs became the seeds of the church. Augustine put it this way, The martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked, burnt, rent, butchered, and they multiplied. Finally, the emperor became a believer himself, putting an end to Rome's authorized antagonism. And yet, sadly, persecution continues to persist. Today, in India, Hindu terrorists regularly target Christian evangelists. The Muslim government of Somalia and Sudan today is orchestrating a vigorous campaign to wipe out the Christian community in their countries. Today, Roman Catholic extremists in Mexico have mounted a violent campaign to hinder Protestant evangelists from sharing the gospel of Jesus. Log on to the newsroom section of the Voice of the Martyrs website and you'll find documented cases of persecution against Christians in India and Nepal and Somalia and Sudan and China and Iraq and Afghanistan and Indonesia in Nigeria, and in Iran. It's been estimated that more people have died for their faith in Jesus in the 20th century than in all the other centuries combined. There is still a heavy price being paid by Christians even in our day. In an article on the Suffering Church, FaithWorks magazine listed various degrees to which believers today are called on to suffer for their faith. Here they are in order, from mildest down to severest. 17, disapproval. 16, ridicule. If you're just being ridiculed, you're way on the light end of the spectrum. 15, pressure to conform. 14, loss of educational opportunities. 13, economic sanctions. 12, shunning. 11, alienation from community. Loss of employment. Loss of property. Now it gets violent. Physical abuse. 7, mob violence. 
Six, harassment by officials. Five, kidnapping. Four, forced labor. Three, imprisonment. Physical torture. And at the top of the list, execution. Thankfully, up until now, Christians in the United States have been spared these harsher harassments. But all Christians in all places suffer from some form of persecution. And there's no guarantee of what the future will bring anyone. This is why Peter tells his readers in verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as some strange thing happened to you. In other words, don't act surprised when you're persecuted. It's not as if suffering isn't a logical conclusion. Think about it. We live in the same wicked world that nailed Jesus to the cross. And not much has changed. Greed and jealousy and unbelief still motivates the actions of men. Just as they did in Jesus' day. If this world rejected and executed the Savior, do we really expect it to pass out high fives to his followers? Remember when Jesus discussed with his disciples the persecution that he expected once he arrived in Jerusalem? He told them that he'd be arrested and tried and crucified. And it was Peter, our our author, who, who rebuked Jesus. He said to him, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Jesus being harmed or hurt was unthinkable to Peter. But now, years later, after the cross, Peter considers it unthinkable that the followers of Jesus could escape this world without being harmed or hurt in some way. He's come to the realization that this world is not our friend. He's encouraging his cohorts in the faith. They need to warm up to this idea of fiery trials. Don't think it's strange when you're persecuted. Hey, think it's strange when you're not persecuted. If you're buddy-buddy with everybody, if everyone likes you, thinks you're the life of the party, chances are you're not living for Jesus and you're not standing up for righteousness. Jesus is headed one way. This world is headed the other way. And if you're living in this world and for Jesus Christ, there is going to be, there is bound to be some friction. Here's what Peter's doing in chapter 4. Since persecution is inevitable, we need to approach it with the right attitude. You remember last week, we looked at the first half of the chapter. Peter taught us that how we handle opposition, if we handle it properly, then suffering and persecution can become a blessing in disguise, and we learn the reasons why. Well, this week, in the last half of chapter 4, Peter tells us that when we're persecuted for Jesus' sake, we need to immediately look on the flip side. We taste Christ's sufferings. But on the flip side, we rejoice in His glory. We're reproached for Jesus, but on the flip side, we're blessed by God. Our lives draw blasphemy, but on the flip side, we bring God glory. We suffer, but on the flip side, it's for being a Christian, not for being an idiot. We're saved, but on the flip side, others won't be. Granted, persecution is no fun. Suffering gets old. 
focus solely on the snubs and the put-downs and the rejection and the threats, and you'll end up defeated. But if you look on the flip side, you'll see that God is doing an awesome work in your life. Here's what Zach did this past week up at Calvary 316. In our new building, we have skylights in the roof. And the sun recently has been very hot, and it's been beaming through the skylights, and it's causing this metal building to sort of bake like an oven. So in order to help with our air conditioning units so that they'll perform better, Zach went up on the rooftop. That kid's been going up on rooftops since he was about eight years old. But he went up on the rooftop, and he covered the skylights with pieces of plywood. For a while there, plywood was just sitting on the skylights. They were just happy to be there. They were content. They were sitting in the sunshine, just sort of soaking in God's rays, just sort of lying there, hanging out. But Zach and I know that the storms are going to come. They always come. Rain is going to come. Wind is going to come. And unless those pieces of plywood get weighted down, they're going to blow away in the storm. I didn't raise no dummy. So this past week, Zach went back up on the rooftop with some concrete blocks. And he put those concrete blocks down on top of those pieces of plywood to counterbalance them. They were counterweights. And when you put down a counterweight that counters the storm, it has to be heavier and stronger than the power of the storm. Now, here's my point. If you're not experiencing a storm this morning, (laughs) let me say to you with great certainty, there is a thunder boomer in your forecast. It's coming. And God doesn't want you blown away And so he has stabilized you with counterweights. These are the blocks that steady a believer in the midst of the storm. When persecution comes, God's blessing proves heavier and stronger. Your partnership with Christ, the joy of the Lord, the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, a clean conscience, fellowship with other believers, these are the counterweights. These are what balance out the strength of the storm. Now, this is what Peter says to us in verse 13. He says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what I want to do is put together verse 12 and verse 13. On the one hand now, in verse 12, we read it. He's talking about the fiery trial. He says, it's inevitable. He says it's to be expected, it's inescapable, and it's meant to try us, to try our faith. But then we read in chapter 12, let me go back. When I read verse 12, and I read about this fiery trial, I got to admit, I have a hard time getting past that phrase, fiery trial. Don't you? Fiery trial? What, what makes it so fiery? I don't like that fiery part. Fiery trial? I just sort of stare at that phrase, fiery trial? I mean, how about a easy trial? Lord, how about a remedial trial? Maybe an average trial. Maybe a semi-difficult, warm but not hot, 
not all that fiery, mid-level type of trial. Fiery trial? I just get focused on that fiery trial. That doesn't sound good to me. It gives me the creeps. Fiery trial? You know, I wish trials came packaged like sauces at Taco Bell. You don't have to take the fiery sauce. You can take the mild sauce or even the hot sauce. Why does it have to be fiery sauce? Lord, I want a cool trial, not a fiery trial. But you see, here's my problem. I've got my eyes only on the trial. I, I'm, I'm focused on the fiery trial. I can't get past that, that trial. That's my problem. I'm focused only on the trial and not the person who comes with the trial. And, and not the blessing that comes after the trial. And not the growth that comes through the trial. I'm only focused on the trial. You see, I need to learn to look on the flip side. At the counterweight that God has added to my life. For he always provides a force greater than the strength of the storm. Look at verse 13. The fiery trial, who does it belong to? It belongs to Jesus. It's his trial. Peter calls it Christ's sufferings. That means Christ and all his resources come with the trial. And what comes afterward? His glory is revealed. Trials teach us something about God, that he's merciful and mighty. We experience his presence and power in the midst of that trial. And then what results from the trial? Peter says, you're glad. You're glad you went through it. You're glad for what you learned. You're glad that you glorified Jesus. Peter says, you're glad with exceedingly great joy. But you don't see all this just looking at the trial. You got to look on the flip side. Don't just look on one side. Look on the flip side. It reminds me of the man who died and went to heaven. The angel at the gate, he asked him, he said, what righteous deeds did you do when you were on earth? He said, well, you know, once I I tried to help out a little old lady. The angel said, tell me about it. The fellow replied, he said, well, I saw a biker, a hell's angel, burly, brute kind of a guy, and he was beating up this little old lady. And so I walked up, kicked him in his shins, told the lady to run for her life. And then I even tried to punch the guy in the nose. Boy, this angel was so impressed. He said, man, what a brave act. Wow, how long ago did this happen? The man answered, well, it happened about 15 seconds ago. (laughs) Here's my point. You know, there may come a time when you're called on to defend another person. Or stand up for righteousness. Or do the will of God and it puts you in harm's way. You're persecuted for Jesus' sake. But after suffering comes rejoicing. If not in this life, 15 seconds later. In Matthew 5, Jesus said to those who are being persecuted for his sake, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. How's that for the flip side? Realize, if you don't know Jesus, this life, with all of its pain and heartache and disappointment and frustration, this is as good as you're ever going to get it, man. This is it for you. This life is as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. How sad is that? But if you're a believer in Jesus, this is as hard as it's ever going to be for you. 
This is the only hell you're ever going to have to experience. Your life might be rough, but it's still better than hell. If you hunker down, you can get through it. You can make it. You can keep weathering the storms. If you continue to trust in Jesus, it's going to get really good for you. One day soon, the storms are going to make heaven that much sweeter. Christ's sufferings are momentary, but the glory that follows is eternal. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul explains his driving passion. He says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, a lot of people, they want to know Jesus. And oh, they want to know his resurrection power. Yeah, miracles, man. I'm into miracles. Bring on the miracles. I want to know some miracles. But, but notice, even the fellowship of his sufferings was on Paul's wish list. Here's how love thinks. I want to feel what you feel. I want to see through your eyes. I want to think and process from your frame of reference. I want to put my feet in your shoes if I love you. If you're going through it, I'm going with you. This is how Peter felt about Jesus. He rejoiced to partake in Christ's sufferings. Peter knew that not only did Jesus experience persecution, he had been destined for it. Suffering wasn't his diversion. It was central to his mission. So how can we now say we love Jesus if we tuck tail and run from his sufferings? If you're given the privilege of being put down for or with Jesus, then rejoice, my friend. You're being honored. What an opportunity to taste of life's deepest joy. But Peter adds to our faith another counterweight in verse 14. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When the storm rages and tries to blow you over, there's another force inside you that rises up and barrels back On the day of Pentecost, you remember the Holy Spirit was like a rushing mighty wind. The holy storm is greater than the storm of persecution. The Spirit of God enlightens us and empowers us. He reveals Jesus. He brings heaven to earth. He fills us with joy and boldness. The glory of heaven is brought to our hearts. In the fiery trial, people witness something different about us. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit who abides in us. When all hell breaks loose around us, it's the Spirit of God who gives us peace and rest. It seems a persecuted believer receives a special allocation of God's Spirit. He says, when you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Apparently, God fights storm with storm. The winds of persecution rage on the outside, but that rushing mighty wind of God's spirit and power, it fills us on the inside. Here's the flip side. God's spirit is never stronger. His grace is never sweeter than when we're persecuted. And the biggest blessing the Holy Spirit brings to us is the love of God. The love of God. Romans 5 teaches us that God reveals his love to us in two ways. It's displayed... On the cross. If you want to know how much God loves you. Just look to Jesus on the cross. He loves you this much. 
It's displayed on the cross. But it's diffused by the Spirit. God's Spirit pours out His love into our hearts. And it's the love of God that's desperately needed by suffering people. You see, when you get laid off from a job, it's a lot harder to feel God's love than when you've been promoted. It's easier to sense God's love at a wedding than it is in a divorce court. God's love is more tangible, it's more real to us after we've witnessed the birth of our baby than it is after we've attended the funeral of our parents. This is why in the fiery trial, the love of God acts as a counterweight. It counteracts the fierceness of the storm, this powerful love of God. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen had just spoken of Jesus in front of an angry Jewish mob. They had picked up stones in order to pummel him. And yet in the midst of the chaos, we're told, he being full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit counterbalanced the stones. The Spirit made Stephen stronger than the persecution he faced. The heavens opened and he saw Jesus, even as the stones flew. One Roman wrote of the Christians in the Colosseum, He said, what secret power have they which can inspire even the youngest and the feeblest among them? My religion can only hope that I may not be unhappy. Theirs leads them to death with triumphant songs of joy. Well, Peter writes, the spirit of glory and of God is our secret power. And then he adds another flip side. He says, on their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. I mean, listen only to the slurs and the mocking and the meanness of those who persecute you, and it'll beat you down. It'll wear you out. But there's a flip side. You're listening to what's being said on earth. But in heaven, Jesus is taking great pleasure in the stand that you're you're showing. He's proud of your attempts to bring Him glory. I I love the story of John Chrysostom. John lived in the 4th century A.D., and he preached so strongly against sin that it offended the emperor and the empress. In fact, when called before Caesar, he was threatened with banishment if he didn't stop preaching. And Chrysostom told the emperor, he said, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. The emperor threatened him again. Then I will slay you. Chrysostom rebutted. He said, No, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Well, your treasures then will be confiscated. Sorry, my treasures are in heaven where no one can break through and steal. Then I'll drive you from man so that you'll have no friends left. And John Chrysostom said, that you can never do for I have a friend in heaven who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John Chrysostom knew that the child of God is untouchable. This world can take nothing from us that truly matters. Well, verse 15 shows another flip side. Peter says that it's an honor to suffer for God and for good, but not for sin and stupidity or for being a dork or being a jerk. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter. He's balancing some things out here. He's saying suffering is not necessarily a virtue. I mean, suffering for suffering's sake 
What good is that? He says, if you suffer for a crime, or if you suffer for some evil deed, or even if you just suffer for sticking your nose in somebody else's business, what's the value in that? Spreading gossip and causing division and stirring up trouble and being obnoxious. That isn't being persecuted for Jesus' sake. There's nothing noble about suffering because you're stupid or sinful. I've known people who were rude and they were abrasive and they just kind of strutted around acting holier than thou and looking down their nose at people. And people ostracized them. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. But they walked around like they were some kind of a martyr for Jesus. Man, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. No, you're not. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. It's not the same thing. I grew up in a very legalistic church. We read the old King James where it said that Christians are to be peculiar people. And boy, did we take that literally. We were so strange. We were weird. We, we dressed and talked weird. You know, style-wise, we were always kind of behind the curve. We were old-fashioned. And we used religious lingo that nobody outside the church could understand. And when people laughed at us, it wasn't because we were being persecuted for Jesus' sake. They laughed at us because we were odd and weird. See, godliness has little to do with style and culture. It has everything to do with love and with goodness. As Peter says, fiery trials will come. But when you're persecuted, make sure it's for Jesus' sake or it's of no spiritual value. And then Peter challenges us in verse 17. He says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. It's dawned on Peter that the greatest obstacle between the world and Jesus is the hypocrisy in his church. And something needs to happen. Judgment, house cleaning needs to come to the house of God. You know, we're not going to draw people to the light if we're asleep in the dark. God sends the fiery trial to us first. He shakes us in order to wake us. But the fiery trial that refines the gold, it also consumes the straw. And this is why Peter adds, And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if God isn't squeamish about disciplining his kids, he's not going to hesitate to bring down the hammer on the world. You see, if you and I, God's kids, the apple of God's eye, His beloved, people paid for by the blood of Jesus, if God doesn't spare us from fiery trials, He certainly isn't going to shelter those who reject Him from the same trials. Peter poses another thought in verse 18. He says, Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now understand, when Peter says scarcely saved, he doesn't mean barely saved. You see, nobody is barely saved. There's not degrees of salvation. You're really saved. Well, you're, not, you're sort of saved. You're not quite saved. That's not the way it works. Being saved is like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. No degrees there. You're either saved or you're not. The New Testament tells us that all true believers are complete in Christ. 
That means that if you're saved by the blood of Jesus, you're as saved and you're as forgiven as you can get. But it's the getting there that can be more difficult for some people than for others. For to become a Christian, a person has to overcome some distractions and step over their pride and shake off a few pleasures that that they don't need and unload and unpack some idols in their life. And to do that is more difficult for some than it is for others. This is why if you're not saved today, you need to get saved before you leave this building. Now folks will say to that, are you saying that I can't get saved tomorrow or later today? Is there some specific sin that I might commit that will cause God to pull the offer off the table? Of course not. Here's what I mean. The more you sin though, The longer you put it off, the harder it's going to be for you to repent and be saved when the time is right. You see, here's what happens. The longer you put it off, the more you're engaged in sinful activity. You're laying down over your life layers of rebellion and layers of stubbornness. And these layers get built up. Spiritual calluses begin to grow in your life. You know, you muffle the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. And then you muffle it again, and you muffle it again. And after a while, you can't hear Him anymore. You become immune to God's conviction. When you put off doing what you need to do, you sink deeper and deeper into the sin that has you trapped. This is why I say it, because it's more difficult for you to repent. And, And Peter is saying to us, man, if the righteous is scarcely saved, where are the ungodly and the sinner? Don't put it off any longer. While God's offering you salvation, take it. Be saved today. And this is why Peter wraps it up the way he does. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. If you're suffering today, here's what you need to do. First of all, don't think it's strange. Don't think something weird's happening to you. This is what... What will happen if you live for Jesus? You will be persecuted. But then look on the flip side. God's doing a work in your life. There's blessings for you in the future. Lean on the counterweights. The Holy Spirit. The fellowship of Christ. Make sure you're suffering for Jesus' sake. Not because you're evil or odd. And if all that's true of you, well then Peter says, just keep on doing good. And commit your soul to a loving Savior and to a faithful Creator. It might be hard today, but there's a flip side. It's going to get better real soon. I want to close this morning by reminding you of a fiery trial that shook our nation in April of 1999. Two troubled students walked into Columbine High School with loaded automatic weapons and with the intent to kill. They targeted athletes, minorities, and Christians. The killing spree ended up taking 13 lives. In the school library, one of the killers shouted, Does anyone in here have a faith in Christ? 17-year-old Cassie Bernal, she stood up. One of the killers looked her in the eye and asked Cassie, Do you believe in God? An eyewitness reported, it was really cruel the way he said it. It was almost like Satan was trying to talk through him. 
Cassie answered, Yes, I believe in Jesus. And that's when the killer squeezed off the trigger and shot her in the head. Other students, 17-year-old Rachel Scott, 16-year-old John Tomlin, were murdered in a similar fashion for the same reasons. Understand this, two terrorists spent the day hunting down Christians in the good old U.S. of A. Now, when Peter wrote this letter, persecution against Christians hadn't yet reached a lethal level, but it would. And as Columbine proved, even in a country historically friendly toward Christians, persecution can escalate. And i got to warn you, if Jesus tarries, intolerance toward Christians may become increasingly hostile. It might be only a matter of time before you and I are faced with some extremely costly choices. And if Peter were here, he would tell us, get ready. Be ready. Prepare yourself now. Learn to look on the flip side. To see the other side of the persecution. Learn to lean on the counterweights that God has provided to make you strong in the storm. Peter would say, let's get ready now for what might come soon.